a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, we just live in a time where there is just no shortage of bad news. So if you tuned in today so I could tell you all the bad things that are happening and everything that should make you afraid or angry, well, I'm going to disappoint you, at least uh, partially, because <laughs> that's really not what I'm about. Look, I mean, there are plenty of places where you can access your Daily Dread supplement, but I, I want you to know I, I'm sincerely trying to put forth this effort to to provide some truth, some light, and and hopefully encouragement, and do I do I dare be so bold, some inspiration to step up and and fulfill whatever role you are meant to fulfill. In other words, to to be the person you were born to become. But I don't want it based out of uh, you got to do this, man. The world's falling apart all around us, and it's hard because there, there's not a, a lot of good news going on today. There are tensions everywhere. There's there's a lot of chaos. This is very consistent with fourth turning methodology, meaning it's it's a it's a crisis cycle, and we are moving towards the uh, the climax of this particular crisis, and it's it's a little bit scary. Look, I understand. Most of the preceding fourth turnings that we have seen throughout American history have been things like the Revolutionary War and founding era, which, you know, it seems far removed, but that was uh, that was a time of great upheaval. You know, the balance of what the nation would be, or I guess the, the, the fate of what the nation would be literally hung in the balance. Nobody knew for sure how that was going to turn out. Likewise, the Civil War and Reconstruction. That was also a fourth turning crisis, and it was a big one. 600,000 people died. You know, the, the nation, uh, in my opinion, swapped chattel slavery for a kind of political slavery with uh, the demise of federalism and the institution of, a all, of an all-powerful national government in its place. World War II and the Great Depression. That was the last big fourth turning. Are you noticing kind of a common theme here? Okay, war is a big part of it. Economic upheaval, civic decay and, and unrest. And it seems to get a little bit more powerful each time. And, and, you know, the big question that should be on our minds is, okay, so what lies on the other side of this fourth turning? And, of course, the answer is none of us really know for sure. You can't really predict specific events. Oh, well, we know that this is going to happen, this is going to happen. We just know that uh, with fourth-turning methodology, the crisis typically involves elements of war, economic upheaval, civic decay. Institutions and faith in institutions crumbles. And I understand that's daunting. I mean, all this, all good luck, Brian, on not uh, giving us fear or, you know, something to be afraid of here or, or, or anger. But I'm just, I'm trying to face this as, as realistically as possible. And I guess the, the truth of the matter is we're facing hard times, challenging times. But I also want you to remember, it's been done before. And we've come through it. And in some cases, we came through it better on the other side. I think the Revolutionary War and the, the founding era, 
There's no doubt in my mind there was a better result on the other side of all of that difficulty than there was going into it. Even, you know, going, coming out of the, the war between the states and the, the Reconstruction era, some things were not as good, but there was still incredible promise in people's standard of living and, and ability to, to chart their own course was remarkable. America kind of grew into its own under those, uh, those circumstances following that conflict. After World War II, you know, my kids and I have had this discussion. If you, could, if you could be transported back to or live in any time of your choosing, late 1950s, early 1960s, that's where I'd want to be. The haircuts, the cars, the architecture, the clothing. I don't know. There's something about that vibe, I think. And it's not to say that it was perfect. There was, you know, there was also Jim Crow and there were, there were you know, some serious problems. But there's, there's a lot to be grateful for, even in our time. And I guess this is the point I'm trying to make. I believe every single one of us, at least if you're within the sound of my voice, I think we have a very essential mission to fulfill. It's an individual thing. What I'm doing and what I believe I'm supposed to do is not the same thing as what you're supposed to do. And I think that's the kind of thing that, uh, in my opinion, again, you have to suss that out. I would start by saying, go to your creator and ask, what am I supposed to do? What would you have me do to make the difference that I was born to make? By the way, that's a lot scarier than it sounds. I mean, that sounds like such a trite thing. Well, I just go ask God, you know, tell me what I should do. But I can tell you from firsthand experience, that's not how your creator works. It's not going to be like, okay, here's a list of instructions. Just follow these and everything's going to be cool. And you'll never, you'll never experience grief. You'll never experience sorrow or anything like that. That's just not consistent with what life is all about. In fact, I want to share something with you. I'm going to start out with this, this passage that uh, John Miltimore shared on his Substack, And it's, this is a brilliant passage on pain, loneliness, and sorrow. One of the reasons I'm sharing this is because I have some very dear friends, people that I love, who are, are going through all of these things right now. And to find hope in this kind of a situation or to find hope in a world such as the one we live in is not easy. But John Miltimore shares this excerpt from a book called Three Men in a Boat to Say Nothing of a Dog, of the Dog, rather. This was published by English humorist Jerome Jerome, which, by the way, is not a pseudonym, published back in 1889. And he says, you know, the book is itself very funny, but there's parts that really stand out. In fact, sometimes the author pivots from humor to explore other parts of the human experience. And one of the parts occurs where the narrator steps out for a cool breath of air on a beautiful evening. And after a day of travel, jokes, and laughter, the narrator feels something powerful as he stands alone before the glory of creation. Here's what it says. It was a glorious night. The moon had sunk and left the quiet earth alone with the stars. It seemed as if in the silence and the hush, while we, her children, slept, they were talking with her, their sister, conversing of mighty mysteries and voices too vast and deep for childish human ears to catch the sound. They awe us, these strange stars, so cold, so clear. We are as children whose small feet have strayed into some dim-lit temple of the God they've been taught to worship but know not. 
and standing where the echoing dome spans the long vista of the shadowy light, glance up, half hoping, half afraid to see some awful vision hovering there. And yet it seems so full of comfort and strength, the night. In its great presence our small sorrows creep away, ashamed. The day has been so full of fret and care, our hearts have been so full of evil and bitter thoughts, and the world has seemed so hard and wrong to us. Then night, like some great loving mother, gently lays her hand upon our fevered head and turns our little tear-stained faces up to hers and smiles. And though she does not speak, we know what she would say, and lay our hot-flushed cheek against her bosom, and the pain is gone. Sometimes our pain is very deep and real, and we stand before her very silent, because there is no language for our pain, only a moan. Night's heart is full of pity for us. She cannot ease our aching. She takes our hand in hers, and the little world grows very small and very far away beneath us. And borne on her dark wings, we pass for a moment into a mightier presence than her own. And in the wondrous light of that great presence... All human life lies like a book before us, and we know that pain and sorrow are but the angels of God. Only those who have worn the crown of suffering can look upon that wondrous light, and they, when they return, may not speak of it or tell the mystery they know. End quote. Now, John Miltimore says, The brief tale that follows these lines is almost as beautiful as the passage above. It involves a knight who loses his comrades and becomes lost in a dark forest, When he later emerges, his face glows with a wondrous light, and he professes thanks to that which led him astray into that forest called sorrow. And I love how John Miltimore says, I still haven't figured out exactly what that parable means, but I think I'm starting to. And I'm like him. I'm I'm trying to make sense of it all, too. Look, I I would rather avoid pain. I would much rather avoid sorrow. But the reality is they are part of the world in which we live. They are part of and subject to the laws that govern this world in which we live. So we have to learn how to live with them and how to, how to work around them and, and experience them. And quite frankly, I found that avoiding them isn't really an option. The only option is to move forward through them. But something marvelous happens when we do that especially if we do it with a sense of purpose, even divine purpose. We come out on the other side better than we went in. If that doesn't make sense, it's okay. But for some, it will. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors who make this program uh, possible on a daily basis. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, TMCPNation.com, and also ClimbingUpward.com. By the way, I sat down and had a wonderful conversation with uh, Dr. John C. Pulver and his wife Pam yesterday. Wonderful people. They were actually traveling through southern Idaho and and came and visited me. And I, I've, I'm i going to gush here for just a moment, first of all, about John. John is a wonderful, wonderful guy. I'm going to have him on the show here very soon. Um, I just love his viewpoint. And his wife is, is a wonderful person as well. Something they saw 
as they were traveling through southern Idaho. And I, I get it. People who haven't been here, Idaho, can any good thing come out of Idaho? Oh, I've heard that phrase many, many times. Maybe it's the heavy snowfall that was received this year through the Intermountain West, or maybe it's uh, the heavier-than-average rain and cooler temperatures that we saw, you know, heading into June. But I have never seen such a lush, green landscape as what we're seeing right now. And I had the chance over the last couple of weeks to really travel uh, throughout a good portion of southern Idaho, central and eastern southern Idaho. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, like, I've never seen anything quite like it. Words don't even begin to convey just how verdant that landscape is. And if you've ever traveled through here, you'll know that that can't be said all times of the year. By August, it's like, yeah, things are looking pretty brown, pretty sagebrushy, (laughs) a lot of lava rock. It's just, it's beautiful. So if you're looking for a reason to appreciate some beauty, there you go. Now, let's talk about appreciation of something that uh, that's maybe a little bit more different. You've heard the term dead-end job, referring to entry-level work. Well, you know, get a job at Walmart, get a job at McDonald's. How many people have you heard say, I would never do that? I don't want to have a McJob, I want a career. Well, you know, I want a career. Art Carden, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, explains why America needs more McJobs. This is really a wonderful piece. He says, the new mayor of Chicago wants to fight crime by creating new opportunities for young people. And he's blamed recent upswings in violence in Chicago on the lack of opportunity. Now, research from the NBER suggests that there is less violence when there are more job opportunities. So this is at least promising. But then Art asks the question, so why aren't there more jobs? And he says, maybe it's because so many people are all fools and knaves. But if economics teaches us anything, it's to look at people's incentives before we examine their mental and moral fiber. So after a quick internet search, he says, I learned that the minimum wage in Illinois is $13 per hour. If legislation makes Chicago youth unemployable, why should we be surprised that no one will employ them? Chicago and cities around the country need to repeal minimum wages and reduce the regulatory hurdles teenagers have to clear to find work. Now, we can talk about minimum wage laws another time, but his point is these aren't dead-end McJobs, as they're sometimes derisively called. Instead, Art Carden says there are important opportunities to learn how to function in the labor market, and importantly, how to serve others. One of the most important things about working for pay in a service enterprise is that it takes you off the throne. It makes you contend with the fact that you are not the star of the cosmic narrative. Other people matter. Other people have preferences and problems, and it's presumptuous to expect them to ignore those preferences and problems and do what you want for no other reason than because you want it done. Well, it turns out the best way to do what you want is to govern your selfish passions and to help other people do what they want. Now, he says, unfortunately, I expect this argument to pass unnoticed before blind eyes. H.L. Mencken allegedly said that the definition of fundamentalism is the fear that someone somewhere might be having a good time. Well, 21st century progressive fundamentalism is the fear that someone somewhere might make money. And progressives look askance at fast food companies and retailers that make a great deal of money. 
Now, this is not in itself vicious if it's done via exchange, which, as it happens, is how fast food companies and retailers make their money. It is positively virtuous. In competitive labor markets, these firms' profits do not come at the consumer's or employee's expenses. They do not take it. They earn it by making consumers and employees better off relative to their best alternatives. You understand what he's saying here? Art Carden says McJobs aren't just worth having, they're vital. They make it easier for the people who have them to accumulate valuable skills and labor market experience, which which research has shown leads to future higher earnings. The market process allows low-skilled people to specialize in what they do best while freeing up high-skilled people who can concentrate their efforts on things they do best. So everybody wins. And in some small way, you have a part in every achievement by every bleary-eyed customer for whom you dutifully pour coffee on their morning commute. So he says, consider a real-world example. This article has sat in my drafts folder for a very, very long time. Art says, I wrote the very first draft of this article more than a decade ago at a McDonald's and revised it one time at India Palace, one of my favorite restaurants in Memphis where I was living at the time. The opportunity to cooperate with the owners and staff at India Palace freed up time I would otherwise spend on food food preparation rather, and allowed me to concentrate on something I enjoy and do relatively well, namely writing articles like this one. The owners and staff at the restaurant were able to earn higher incomes. I'm able to earn a higher income. We're both better off. Now, he says some might object that I, a privileged white guy, am ruthlessly and brutally exploiting the low-wage workers who prepared and served my meals while I mused about the labor market. Well, he says it's true that the restaurant's proprietors haven't had the same opportunities that I've had, but that's largely because of lousy political institutions in their home countries and a nonsensical immigration policy in their adopted home. Their children have vastly expanded opportunities relative to what they would have enjoyed elsewhere. And in just a few short years, I've seen things changing in my day job as a college professor. More and more of my students are immigrants or the children of immigrants. Their educations are financed in no small part by the opportunities afforded by a more integrated global market for goods and services. Now, he says someone might object, someone might object that we can't build a strong economy on jobs at Walmart and McDonald's. But he says, actually, we can. Brian Kaplan has made several excellent points in this regard and continues to do so as he prepares his book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. He argues quite correctly that allowing people to have the ability to specialize in low-skill occupations frees up the time and energy of high-productivity, high-skill workers. Both high-skill and low-skill workers can innovate and mightily. But these allow us to save time and energy, which in turn allows us to have greater output. The productivity increases might be indirect, but Art Carden says they're there. People want big, splashy programs administered by fancy leaders with flashy titles and flashy outfits. But he says, I'm convinced that there remains a lot of low-hanging fruit, however, that requires none of these. Market integration that allows capital and labor to cross borders freely, borders after all are lines drawn by politicians, has enormous potential to increase standards of living. Getting rid of regulations on labor markets and perhaps even especially at the bottom of skill distribution will allow for greater specialization. 
People look at dead-end jobs and so-called McJobs and say one isn't going to earn enough to support a family flipping burgers, but that misses the point. A McJob gives someone the opportunity to make connections and learn and practice valuable skills like punctuality and reliability, the kind of soft skills that can lead one to new opportunities. And regardless, it's easier to feed and support a family at some wage than at no wage. So is the world we would design if we were is this the world we would design if we were starting from scratch? Well he says no. But it's the world we inhabit now, in no small part due to millennia of attempts to redesign and rebuild society according to the plans and visions of intellectual and moral elites. His point is McJobs have an undeserved bad reputation. They provide good, honorable work if you can get it, and they can be important steps on the road to bigger and better things. I'll have a copy of this in my show notes. Check it out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks again for tuning in. Again, my goal here is not to get you wound up and angry or fearful. I'm hopefully giving you some good information, some food for thought, things that uh, will, will help you better understand the world. Just provide a slightly broader vantage point from which you can uh, proceed forward. All right. So I, now, having said that, <laughs> I'm going to share with you what, uh, what may be one of the touchier subjects that I have uh, touched on in a long time. This is an article from Brandon Smith. And it's one that deserves some pretty serious discussion. He wonders why American churches are eerily silent when the country needs them the most. Now, this is not an anti-religious screed, but he's asking a question that I know that, uh, that more than a few people are wondering about and, and, and contemplating at this time. Why doesn't my church say more, do more, or provide you know, a stronger backbone of, of spiritual courage to stand up against, uh, you know, things that are clearly, you know, leading to, to darkness. Here's how Brandon Smith puts it. He says, I had a relatively marginal Christian upbringing as a child and didn't really become interested in questions of a metaphysical nature until later in life. He says, my relationship to organized religion has always been to meet it with skepticism. I appreciate the fundamental moral messages and the aspirations to care for your fellow man, but I often wonder if a theocratic system would just end up becoming another form of tyranny. There are so many elements of organized religion that could be exploited by evil people who want to use it for their own ends. Collectivism is collectivism, is it not? He says, I don't think I became fully or truly immersed, rather, in the concept of a creatively engineered universe until I started studying quantum physics and Jungian psychology. Then I realized there was far too much synchronicity in the world, far too much evidence that there is some kind of design, some kind of plan to life. And he says, I may not understand what the plan is, but I can see the mathematical and psychological fingerprints of what one might call God. And he says, it's the reason I could never take atheism seriously. The claim of atheism has long been that the philosophy has nothing to do with faith and everything to do with evidence. Yet, every time I see an atheist confronted with evidence of creative design, they dismiss it blindly. 
And he says, this kind of ignorance has always been more horrifying to me than anything else. The notion of scientific cultism and tyranny hiding behind false claims of logic and rationalism. Brandon Smith says, I'm explaining my position on this issue to drive home the fact that I do not hold any affiliation to any particular church or religious group. I will defend Christianity when I feel it deserves to be defended, and I will criticize Christianity when I feel certain groups or church leaders have gone astray. For example, anyone who reads my work knows I've outlined evidence that the Pope is an utter fraud and globalist puppet. And he says there are wolves in sheep's clothing within every belief system. So he says, when I hear a deafening silence, when I say I hear a deafening silence among Christian churches when it comes to the political and social climate today, this is coming from someone who's not quick to call for theocratic intervention. Even I find the lack of faith disturbing. By the way, great Darth Vader quote. He says, maybe I need to qualify my concerns a bit more. How about the sudden rise of Unitarian and progressive groups making a mockery of churches and co-opting Christian ceremonies to include woke propaganda, LGBT Marxism, and moral relativism? Where is the organized response from Christians on this development? By the way, he includes a a video in this article that you can watch and, and see for yourself. It's titled, You Won't Believe the Words from This Prayer at a Lutheran Church. And he says these are not isolated incidents. The woke cult is creating their own religion by hijacking the religion of others. Not because they want to find inner peace, but because they see the church as a center of power and they want a piece of that action. So why isn't there a mass call for Christian churches to reject the woke invasion? Why isn't there a consortium of Christian leaders moving to denounce these fake churches, making sure that the public knows they do not associate with these groups? Where is the call to action? Brandon Smith says, if it exists, I'm not seeing it anywhere. And let's be clear, if there ever was a time for the Christian community to gain a wider membership, it would be now, as the world enters a state of perpetual chaos. Yet their response is muted and scattered. He says, consider for a moment the proliferation in the Western world of ideals which I can only describe as Luciferian in nature. The notion that pride and narcissism are virtues and that human beings are meant to be gods. The notion that children's bodies are a gender-fluid laboratory for insane medical practitioners that deny the unassailable laws of biology and engage in mass sterilization. The notion that humanity must one day be replaced by machine thinking that disregards reason and moral compass for the sake of cold and sociopathic efficiency. He says, woke is a vehicle, a mask for a greater monster, and it is being forced into the public consciousness. There's been an active and violent attempt to condition the populace to far-left ideology, and this ideology is deeply hostile to Christianity. You would think there would be a nationwide effort to take a stand on the part of various denominations to ensure that this cult does not continue to gain ground. Well, he says, I'll be the first to argue that the liberty movement, as we sometimes refer to it, is an array of different movements joined together by a singular value, that being basic freedom. Not the hedonistic freedom that the political left promotes, which asserts that conscience and reality are subjective, making all behaviors, no matter how evil, acceptable. 
No, natural freedoms are what we value along with the non-aggression principle, which dictates that you cannot harm me or take my freedoms unless my behavior is directly damaging the life and liberty of other people. But what if the love of freedom alone is not enough to rally humanity together to fight the darkness we face today? He asks, what about the love of future generations? What if you and I have to fight and die for a freedom we will never personally enjoy? What if we, what we do today does not benefit us, but it benefits the next generation? What about the act of struggle and sacrifice for a greater cause, even a divine cause? Maybe the liberty movement needs a guiding hand. Maybe we need more Christian groups to step into the fray. Now, Brandon Smith says, let's be honest. Christians have never been the cool kids, but it's hard to deny that Christians and conservatives are swiftly becoming the new punk rock in the face of a wave of leftist authoritarianism that seeks to control how we think, how we feel, what we can say, who we can associate with, where we can work, and how we participate in the economy. Only a couple of years ago, these people were trying to tell us they have a right to destroy us if we refuse to take a pointless vaccine that doesn't stop transmission or stop infection for a virus that 99.8% of people will easily survive. He says, in my mind, the millions of people who fought back against that agenda are rebel heroes. However, we need to be doing more, a lot more, and that requires organization. Christian churches already have the fundamental structures to make that happen, but they aren't working together. He says, I see more organized actions from Muslim groups in the U.S. than I do from Christians, and they're only 1% of the population. Now, the elephant in the room, of course, is 501c3 status that churches use to remain free from federal taxes. But it's a devil's bargain. Specifically, 501c3 pertains to political advocacy or issue advocacy, and churches risk losing their coveted tax-exempt status if they are determined to be influencing legislation or elections in a partisan manner. Well, who gets to determine if a church is acting partisan? Well, the IRS does, of course. In other words, the IRS can act arbitrarily to punish churches it views as a political threat to the prevailing agenda. So the only real solution is for churches to abandon 501c3 status en masse or possibly form a peripheral organization outside of their respective houses of worship that they encourage their members to join an organization that can act politically and does not rely on tax exemption to function. He says it's make or break time for Christians. I know that much. And even among those who are evangelical or prone to notions of the apocalypse, the people who argue that they will be whisked away by God's hand in a rapture before conflict ever reaches them, he says, consider this. And he shares Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 15. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand... Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It's funny how that scripture hits, hearing it in this context. 
but I don't think Brandon Smith is wrong. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So did it make you uncomfortable, you know, going through that? Uh, why are the churches being so silent? And I, look, I I have my own thoughts, you know. Well, uh, on the one hand, why aren't churches more involved politically? I think there is probably something to the 501c3 status, you know, that tax-exempt status. And yet, when people talk about, well, we need to start taxing the churches, I'm like, how come your default isn't we should stop taxing everybody? And instead, you know, try to, to make everybody as free as the churches. But... For some reason, freedom isn't the way that most people seem programmed to go. And then there's there's also the issue of, you know, is is it wrong to question, you know, why churches are are not more politically involved, or at least, um, you know, for instance, I'll just give you this for instance, slavery. The reason slavery was abolished first in Europe, and then later in the U.S. No, it wasn't because of the war between the states. Even though the the spin is, well, you know, all these people died, you know, to stop slavery. No, they didn't. They died because Lincoln would not let the southern states leave. He wanted to preserve the Union. Lincoln, by today's standards, was as much a racist as, as anybody you could think of. The bottom line is, it was the churches that let out. It was the preaching of abolition and the preaching from the pulpits that pricked people's hearts and eventually won over enough people's hearts and minds to reject chattel slavery entirely. Yes, there were eventually acts of government that were officially put in place to, you know, to make sure that, uh, that it would not be brought back. But the rejection of slavery came at a religious and moral level first, not a political one. That's important to remember. And when people have asked me, you know, why my, my I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, people sometimes say, why don't they get more involved? Why aren't they saying more? And I think this may be an acceptable answer. It may not be acceptable to all, but I think churches, all churches, first and foremost, have the directive to help people find salvation. And I'm not talking political salvation. I'm talking about, you know, eternal salvation. That's a big order. That involves not only, you know, uh, proclaiming the gospel to people out there who've never heard it, but it means making sure that uh, that the people who have heard it are, are being sustained and strengthened and perfected, you know, in, in their understanding of it and encouraged to live up to it. That's a tall order. You know, without even getting into on, we also need to have a political lobbying wing and so forth. So I think this is one of those areas where I, I believe, yes, absolutely, there, there should be a religious component to a person's willingness to stand for freedom. But I believe it should come primarily at the individual level. Sorry, I didn't mean to turn this into a church meeting, but um, I have I have lived long enough and I have experienced enough things in the quest to protect and defend freedom that uh, I can say with, with no hesitation or apology 
I believe God is every bit the author of freedom. I believe it's essential to his plans. And that it's one of the greatest gifts that he offers us. But I also believe that it's the kind of gift that if you're not qualified for it, if you, if you aren't willing to live up to the principles and practices that accompany it, you will not enjoy it for long. People can squander their freedom in the same way that they can squander their inheritance if they're not careful. You know, look at Hunter Biden and look at the, look at the hot mess that this poor guy's life is. You want to talk about somebody who has privilege. And yet, so what's he doing with it? I mean, he's, he's running 120 miles an hour straight into the ground. That's sad. So I guess in summary, anything you're doing to get right with God is a good thing. And if the cause of freedom is something that stirs you, I would say that's a good thing as well. And then some people throw, you know, theocratically, oh, you're a theoconservative. <laughs> wow, you invented a new word. Good for you. Here's a cookie. <laughs> Don't let labels uh, throw you off, though. Once you start to understand that uh, the cause of freedom is God's cause as well, and that when you stand for freedom, you stand with God, because you're not just standing for your own, right? You're standing for freedom for everybody. That's the kind of thing that can take that little spark of, yeah, I think freedom's good, and turn it into a roaring inferno of love for freedom in your heart. How do I know this? Because that's, that's what my experience was. I grew up knowing it was a good thing. I knew liberty was good. Couldn't really tell you why, but I just knew it was good. But when I made the connection, and it's been more than 30 years ago, that God is an essential part of that liberty equation. That's when I became less of a cheerleader of liberty and more of a disciple of liberty. And I've never regretted it, even though it's sometimes required me to, to take a little more indirect, sometimes a steeper uphill path than I would have liked to. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step down from the pulpit now. If anybody else wants to come up and share their testimony, please feel free. A couple articles I do want to point you to in, in today's show notes. Again, these are the show notes for July 7th, 2023. I don't mean to pick open an old wound, but I want to thank my friend Ruben for pointing this out to me. There's a very interesting study that was produced by the British medical journal Lancet. And specifically, it was a... Lancet study on COVID vaccine autopsies. And it found, after this review of 325 autopsies following COVID vaccination, 74% of the deaths were caused by the vaccine. That's pretty staggering, right? But by some amazing coincidence, that study was removed from the website within 24 hours. And a note appeared stating, this preprint has been removed by preprints with the Lancet because the study's conclusions are not supported by the study methodology. While the study had not undergone any part of the peer review process, the note implies that it fell foul of screening criteria. I find that kind of interesting and, and more than just a little bit coincidental. A study that shows a high number of deaths might be attributed to reactions to the COVID vaccine, but whoa, hey, let's not get that out there. 
Here's the reason I find that interesting. Because if there is any truth to that, think about the people who are working so hard to force this on everybody else. I mean, some of them came right out and said, we should be putting the unvaccinated in camps. They should not be allowed to participate in the rest of society. Are they ever going to admit they were wrong? Are they ever going to say, oh, well, you know, maybe there maybe there are a few things we were a little premature about? I don't know. But suddenly it, it seems, it seems like more than just a, well, how could we have known? It seems like, no, they're... There's something that's kind of hinky going on here. Maybe they fear the accountability. I can't blame them, on the one hand. If I had a part in that, if I knew that I had played an active role in, you know, trying to persecute people and force people to do something against their better judgment and against their will, and now the evidence starts to, to come forward that maybe this is actually causing harm. It's certainly, I, I don't think it's, it's uh, arguable that uh, what was promised as far as this is going to stop the spread of COVID, it's going to prevent you from getting it, it's going to prevent you from spreading it. That didn't turn out to be true. How many people are on their fourth and fifth boosters and they're talking about, you know, we're going to have more and more boosters all the time, you know. I'm sorry, but somebody was wrong and they need to admit, okay, we got that one wrong. And if you're one of those people who successfully resisted all the psychological pressure, you know, to, to get the jab or else. Just know, you stood up to what uh, was very likely the greatest psychological operation. In fact, let me rephrase that. The greatest psychological warfare operation ever mounted against humanity in the history of humanity, at least to this point. That's no small feat. And for those who did get the jab, please understand You know, that doesn't mean that you're stupid and you're part of the problem. You were most likely coerced or scared or otherwise manipulated into it. That doesn't mean that you need to be, you know, held up as well. Then you're, you know, the reason for all this. It's the people who were so vicious about forcing this on others and who absolutely could not countenance the idea that people should be able to make these decisions for themselves in terms of informed consent, bodily autonomy... Okay, those people maybe need a bit of a spanking. The ones in authority who push those kind of things, they need a little bit more than a spanking. They need a trial. And then whatever justice needs to be meted out, you know, as a result of that trial. Sorry if it sounds vindictive, but uh, my main goal is I don't want to see something like this ever happen again. This is The Brian Hyde Show.